Welcome to Wednesday's show. How are you doing? I hope you've had a great day. My name is Richie Allen, otherwise known as AKA the BBG. It is uh, the 4th of October 2023. I've got a really interesting guest for you today and some interesting talking points too. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Amazon Prime is running a fantastically interesting docudrama right now. Uh, it's called The Fake Shake. It follows the story of Mazar Mahmood, The Fake Shake, who worked for the news of the world and the sun and Rupert Murdoch. The guy who went undercover and posed as an Arab leader to sting people. Sometimes, sometimes exposing real crimes, but other times destroying innocent people, uh, destroying their lives. This was massive for many years. In fact, it's still massive. Jonathan Royal has been on this program over the years. He is a celebrity hypnotist, a really good guy, funny guy. He was a victim of this fake shake with Jonathan Royal. And he's been on the case for, of this for 20 years. He's going to come on the program to tell us all we need to know about the fake shake, what has gone on, what is going on. Uh, and he'll come on the program a bit later on. You do not want to miss that. Jonathan Royal talking about the journalist, we say that loosely, Nazar Mahmood, known as the fake shake. It is fascinating. I promise you that. If you'd like to join in, do drop me a line via the website, richieallen.co.uk, or alternately, Download the app for the program. The Richie Allen Show does have its own app. You can message the studio instantaneously. Yeah. You might think I practiced that. I didn't. I promise you. I swear to Jesus. And right, anyway, enough of that. Enough of the blasphemy. Enough of the blasphemy. So, yeah, listen, um, I want to talk about... Uh, a little bit about the Tory conference, just a little bit about it. Don't panic, don't switch off, don't even dare, stop it now. Hang on a second, stop that. I was thinking about the Irish language today, funnily enough. I was reminiscing about my time on the radio in Ireland and the Irish broadcasting authorities, they insist that the commercial and national stations, the music they play has got to be 33% Irish connected. Now that sounds a bit silly. Do they have to play uh, 33% of the playlist, Richie? Does it have to be Irish musicians and Irish bands? No, no. It could be something as simple as you could have a thrash metal band from Ecuador. But if an Irish man or woman produced or played on the single or the record you were hearing, that counts. But um, often to make it up, we would speak Osquelga which is the Irish language, we, we would introduce the programme, Osquelge, which I always felt a little bit embarrassed about doing, because even though I studied Irish in primary school and secondary school, and I was okay, I became pretty verbose, pretty loquacious, Osquelge, but you forget it, you know, you forget the language as you get older because you don't speak it, but uh, yes, we would introduce the programmes, you know, to a fault your row of you're all welcome and all that nonsense. It's it's Misha Ristardo Halin 
and all that old crack. And it reminded me of working at Waterford Crystal years ago as a tour guide in the early to mid-1990s when most of the people coming in to see Waterford Crystal, most of the visitors were in fact Americans. And of course every American is Irish, we know that. Or at least they claim to be. I'm Irish, are you? Yeah. And they give you some very tenuous link to the country which is ridiculous, you know. Not even good enough to play for Jackie Charlton's Ireland, it's so tenuous, kind of a thing. But um, they'd ask me to speak, like they'd ask you, do you speak Gaelic, Richie? Do you speak Gaelic? And I'd say, it isn't Gaelic, it's Quelga, okay? And they'd say, are you fluent? And I'd always lie and say, yeah, I am. And they'd say, go on then, speak a bit of Irish, they'd say. I had this all the time when I was a tour guide. And I was one of four blokes in a team of 30. There were 26 female tour guides and four blokes, and even with those odds, I couldn't get laid, honestly. Honest to God, right? But I could make them laugh. And on the on the bus on the way into the heart of Waterford Crystal, into the factory, we'd be chatting away, and they'd ask me on the bus, can you speak Irish, Richie? Can you speak Gaelga? And I'd say, yeah, I'm fluent in it. I went to Ring College in Cork for several summers. I didn't really, but I'd say this anyway. And I'm fluent Osquelia. I'm an expert. I'm a PhD in the Irish language. Um, because I wasn't, because I wouldn't have spoken it since school. So they'd say, go on, speak to us for a few minutes in Irish. And I just, anything that would come into my head, you know. To ohas on down arm on current shot a glockach. Ukturon na heron er nahar ator er nav pog mahon ganairi and boher live nilain tinton mara hinton fain nolig hona dit buikus ladia arig live agus bigi kunis mash moshe de hole on will catagum dolgadi on leher as shade vaha a wira and it is it's beautiful Richie it sounds beautiful what did you say and I would just come clean then and say, well, I'm delighted to receive this cup, President of Ireland. Our father, kiss me arse. There's no fireplace like your own. Merry Christmas. Thanks be to God. Get on with it. Be quiet, please. May I have permission to go to the toilet? Holy Mary, Mother of God. Beautiful language. Tis a beautiful language. Did you ever blag anything in your life? I should save that for the Sunday programme. Did you ever blag anything? I could blag. I could sell sand to the Arabs back in the day. Anyway, the fake Sheikh Mazar Mahmood, we're going to talk about him a little bit later on. He did time, as did Jonathan Royal, the celebrity hypnotist, who will come on later on. He did time because of the fake Sheikh, who stung Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, didn't he? Who stung Jody Kidd, who stung anybody you could think of, and ruined lives along the way. So we'll talk about all of that a little bit later on, Pogue Mahone. Right. So I want to make a point or even score a point here. I can't figure out which it is, whether I'm making a point or scoring a point. But I want to talk to you about the Tory conference. No, I'm not going to... Don't panic, I said. I'm not going to give you any analysis of the conference. But the Tories are in Manchester at the moment. They're leaving this evening, right? Filthy animals. They're leaving. I bet you they leave more of a mess than the travellers. Jesus, I'll, I'll be done for hate speech. Anyway, so James O'Brien hates the Tories, hates them. He's got a man crush for Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. This is James O'Brien who presents programmes for LBC Radio. Loves Sadiq Khan. I reckon James O'Brien masturbates to sound bites of Sadiq Khan talking about Ulez. That's his current fetish. You know, that's an absolute boner right there. Anytime that Sadiq Khan is talking about Ulez in 15-minute cities, James O'Brien can't contain himself, you know. Anyway, so we talked, James O'Brien, today about liars lying to people and telling the people that their own eyes are deceiving them. Now, this was wonderful. He, he, 
he initially talked about immigration and how when the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, said that there was a hurricane of immigration coming, O'Brien said that this is basically fascistic language, all the usual shite, right? And that the immigration issue is nowhere near as serious as they're making out. So there's an irony there. So he said that Suella Braverman is lying to people by telling them that their eyes deceived him. And I couldn't help myself because there are so many examples of this. So this is James O'Brien today, today, the 4th of October 2023, the year of our Lord. Have a listen. They are claim no, not just lying, but they're claiming to be the party of facts. Now, that is cultish behaviour. It's possibly fascistic, but it's not just the lie. It's, it's the claim that we are telling the truth even as we lie. That's just not normal. The claim is that we are telling the truth even as we lie. That isn't normal. Keeps that in mind. And there are lessons throughout history of these examples. You, 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 it's not just a lie that is egregious. It's the claim that you're the ones telling the truth. Because it's actually quite hard to argue. You will remember, I think, that Boris Johnson finally finally sort of fell victim to his own dishonesty because that claim nobody could know what was going on in my mind that is actually i, I mean it's 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 a tactic of coercive control it's designed to allow you to essentially frame your own reality which is at odds with observable reality ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears said Big Brother in 1984. Ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. That is the party's final command. Wonderful. So he's accusing the current government and its predecessors of gaslighting people by, by telling people that their own eyes and ears deceived them. Your observable reality, he mentions in the moment, isn't actually real. What we're telling you is true, even though you know it not to be. Listen. And that's what they're doing now. I, I, I've, listen, I have touched on and tickled and flirted with the Orwellian comparisons almost for as long as I've been doing this job. Certainly for as long as I've been awake while doing this job, which, um, I, I, I've got to be honest with you, was not for the first few years. I was kind of just going along with the flow. But since I... Ah, so the first few years he went along with the flow. He basically wasn't doing his job, he said. Keep that in mind. So I've come to understand how things work. He now understands how things work. That line there of actually, I mean, and Orwell knows of what he speaks, doesn't he? The, Orwell is dead. The idea, the idea that uh, you are now being told to ignore the evidence of your own eyes and ears, not just by the media, which wouldn't be that new, but by secretaries of state, by cabinet ministers. Wow. Okay, big brother, ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. Wow, ignore your eyes. Um, not said to you by the media, um, but secretaries of state, he's awake. Let's take a trip down memory lane with James O'Brien. And this is very important. In 2021, James O'Brien had this to say to an old lady who went on a cruise or wanted to go on a cruise and wouldn't quarantine when she returned home. Listen. Here's the thing. If you, let's say the cruise to Spain goes ahead and the quarantine is still in place and you get off the boat and you go into Spain, will you be quarantining for two weeks when you come back? No. Well, then I have to tell the police. I have to tell the police. You come back from Spain, you disembark, off you get with your, I don't know, your sticks of rock and, and all of that for the grandchildren. You won't quarantine. No, I'll have to tell the police, James O'Brien said. Wow. Oh, yeah, but your last call, is she 
wanted to dodge somebody in. I mean, I don't what, know. What do you think the quarantine is for, Jennifer? That's a great question. What's the quarantine for? Just in you your think, own words, why do you think it's there? James, I... I'm going to insist that you answer the question. I know it's to protect people. From what, Jennifer? I, to protect people from what? From COVID-19. It could and how be many people have died? How anything. many people have died of COVID-19? Great question. How many people have died of it? 19. Listen you, to her answer. Do you know what so I'd like far. you to... You know the deaths of people from COVID-19. Three of if my friends, because Don't older. give me a weird right-wing conspiracy no, theory. No, no, no. Don't give me a weird right-wing conspiracy theory. No, no, no. Okay. Two cancers and one heart condition, and on their death certificates it all said COVID-related. Fantastic. She said, I knew people with cancers and a heart condition, and it was listed as cause of death COVID-19. He's been told this in 2021. Now, he knows this is going on because it's been in the Times and it's been in the Telegraph in 2021 that farcical things are going on in coroner's offices where people are being listed as having died of COVID-19 even though they were at death's door with cancer or other, or other terminal illnesses. Listen. That was just three people I know have lost somebody during this period. Yeah, they didn't have COVID. They weren't even tested. That's, that's simply not possible. Ah, that's simply not possible. What did he say that Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson were doing today? It's a tactic of coercive control. It's designed to allow you to essentially frame your own reality, which is at odds with observable reality. It yeah, it, it allows you to gaslight a listener on the radio who knows that people are being listed as having died of COVID when in fact they fell out of a fucking ladder or out of a window and broke their back on a ladder on the way down, but had tested positive for COVID three and a half weeks ago. So what you're doing again is, what is that you're doing to people? It's a tactic of coercive control. It's designed to allow you to essentially frame your own reality, which is at odds with observable reality. Yeah. Ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears, said Ignore the big evidence. Brother in said, 1984. Said Ignore the evidence brother. of your eyes and ears. And the media is doing it today. Let's hear a bit more with the lady back in 2021. Okay, please look into that because you're good oh, at no, looking Jennifer, into Jennifer, I'm, I'm looking into you at the moment. I want look into it, she says to him. She's a nice lady. You're good at looking into things. He isn't. He's a graduate from the London School of Economics. He's not a journalist. He doesn't have a journalistic bone in his body. A journalist, a real one, one of yesteryear, would be, would be really interested in this. Hang on a second there, love. You wouldn't say love, obviously. So, so you're telling me that you, you reckon people are being added to the numbers of those who died from COVID when they shouldn't be. Listen, she says, look into it. You're good at this kind of thing. You're the journalist. This is vaudeville. This really is. Listen. Okay. Oh, no, Jennifer, I'm, not, I'm looking into you at the moment. I want you. So you think that you don't need to quarantine because the risk has been exaggerated as, Listen, as the death I toll around the world. I know. I, do you know oh. what? I, I, I'm not going to fall out with you. I still like you, but this isn't funny anymore. I'm sorry. This is really irresponsible. Please take more care of yourself and your husband, because you know, even if even if you don't care about anybody else, gaslighting. Other people care about you. The rules are there for a reason. A quarantine is there for a reason. We're having a conversation about people who may fray around the edges. Yeah, they're there for a reason. But of course, observable reality back in 2020 and 2021 was that nobody really knew anybody who knew anybody who had died of COVID-19. And that is the truth. Yes, you would occasionally encounter somebody who would tell you that an old aunt had died of COVID in a care home. But you couldn't. It was very difficult to meet anybody 
who could tell you that, yes, um, my sister or my brother-in-law or my niece or nephew died of COVID. The observable reality at the time was, where are the body bags? Where are the hearses? Uh, driving up and down our streets here in Salford and in Greater Manchester and Bolton and Wigan and Lee, where are the hearses? People are not dying. What's going on? Where's the pandemic? That was the observable reality, you see. You're retired, right, Jennifer? So you don't even need to go to work. You don't even need to go to work. I mean, it'd be easy to quarantine. Please, this isn't funny. This isn't like another radio phone-in topic where someone comes on a bit contrary and we all have a bit of a laugh and a bit of a ding-dong and then we agree to disagree. It's just, it's just really stupid, Jennifer, and profoundly dangerous. Please, please have a little think. Dangerous, eh? I'm not going to quarantine because I don't see any evidence that COVID is dangerous. And I'm finding evidence that people are being listed as having died of it, when in fact they probably died of something else. And she's dangerous. This is him the same year. If you're currently on the radio or writing newspaper columns expressing scepticism about lockdowns, I'm pretty sure you could keep a job without actually endangering the lives of everybody in the country could my god listen to that again very important this if you're currently on the radio or writing newspaper columns expressing skepticism about lockdowns i'm pretty sure you could keep a job without actually endangering the lives of everybody in the country couldn't you wow so if you're actually doing your job as a journalist and you're asking questions about the necessity of lockdowns and the harm lockdowns might be doing you're endangering people more from him, same year. This is 2021 into 2022. The arguments against lockdown were so stupid and so obviously wrong. From Wow. Stupid arguments against lockdown. From the very start that I, 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 I think I failed properly to think about them. You know, you, you would say we need to shield vulnerable people and let everybody else go back to work. Even as every time we came out of lockdown, we counted up to 10 and the hospitals were overflowing or close to overflowing. Full, even but they weren't, as we know. When people were saying, "Oh, we've got to end the lockdown because other operations are being postponed," the operations were mostly being postponed because the hospitals were dedicating so much time and energy to COVID cases. And that's okay, then, is it? And first of all, it's a lie. The hospitals were not overflowing. But he says it's okay. It's okay to cancel operations, vital operations that might have saved or prolonged people's lives. It was okay to just treat COVID and fuck all else during 2020 and 2021. It's okay to do that. It's okay to, to stop treating everything and just treat this very, very mild respiratory infection. Even though by not treating people or giving them exploratory exams or by operating on them, you're, you're shortening their lives. That's okay, says James O'Brien. So the idea that we should shield the vulnerable and have more COVID cases was always odd. Just keep this in mind, it's very important. It's a tactic of coercive control. It's designed to allow you to essentially frame your own reality, which is at odds with observable reality. And this is James O'Brien seven months ago. We know that the COVID mRNA jabs in particular are doing terrible damage around the world as we speak, right? This is O'Brien back in March of this year. Whether it's the idea that vaccines are deliberately designed to actually endanger us and damage us, or whether it's the notion that there's a, a, a sort of World Economic Forum master plan to render us all, I don't even know what it's supposed to render us all, but the, but the, but the secret weapon is um, civic policy designed to maximise the number of people who've got all the amenities they need within a 15-minute walk of their front door. So I think we can work out the appeal 
of being one of the ringleaders, right? But why would you buy a ticket for the circus? Why do you think people are increasingly keen to believe ridiculous things? What's happening to us? Not happened past tense, happening present tense. What is happening to us? Because you may, like me, rise above all this stuff and look down on it with a sense of wonder and disbelief, but we're all part of it. What's happening to us? Well, what explains the desire to believe ridiculous things, particularly things about secret overlords trying to control us, which takes us right back to the worst sorts of anti-Semitism and, uh, and the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion. We have a winner, ladies and gentlemen. And secret, secret organisations that, that are seeking to control us for their own... Be where, where does the desire to believe it come from? Don't point out that there is an abundance of evidence that supranational organisations and... Um, massive corporations are conspiring to take whatever freedom is left that 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 people have in in the Western world. Don't point it out. Don't point it out. Don't point out the glaringly obvious, or we'll link what you're saying to anti-Semitic tropes. That's James O'Brien, and this is James O'Brien this morning. You are now being told to ignore the evidence of your own eyes and ears, not just by the media, which wouldn't be that new. Not just by the media, which wouldn't be that new. Ignore the evidence of your own eyes. He's accusing the government of doing that when LBC Radio, owned by Global Media uh, and others, and the ones owned by Bauer Media, are doing that to people every day of the week. It's 21 minutes past the hour. We'll leave James O'Brien there. I couldn't let that go. Uh, I'm back with you in a moment. I'll be reading your comments and then we're going to talk about why Ireland appears to be a dry run at the moment for everything that's coming down the line for every other country in the world. Your body's defences are under constant attack from flu, respiratory diseases and the common cold. Now more than ever, it is essential that you have a robust immune system. And as we all know, vitamin D3 plays an essential role in this. Immunex 365 is our unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. This unique combination of nutrients ensures efficient bioavailability of D3 thereby giving your immune system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. For your peace of mind, all NutriHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Go to NutriHealth365.com to get yours now. That's NutriHealth365.com. You're listening to your Richie Allen Show on richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, nearly 23 minutes past the hour. Your comments, thank you for them. I appreciate them. Hi to Ian, who says this is very on point. Thank you, Ian. It is. It is. I have no truck with the Conservative Party or any party, let alone Suella Braverman or Rishi Sunak, of course not. But the irony of any national radio presenter to claim that the government is gaslighting people when the government says there is a hurricane of immigration on the way, which there is, not that I'm, again, siding with Suella Braverman. Suella Braverman doesn't have the authority to do anything about it. Neither does Rishi Sunak. Neither does Keir Starmer. It doesn't matter which politician resides in Downing Street. That agenda will proceed, whether we like it or not. And when they tell you they're going to do something about it, they're lying. They're playing culture wars. It's a culture war game. OK, uh, that's all it is. So it's not going to be tackled ever. It's meant to happen and it will happen and it will continue to happen. Right. But um, 
that gaslighting. It's what the media has been doing since, well, since forever, but since 2020 on steroids. You know, observable reality. We'll tell you that your observ- observable reality is wrong and that you're an idiot. You know, there's one other small example of this. If, you, if you'll forgive me, if you'll forgive me. Remember when the health secretary, it had to be, it had to be Sajid Javid at the time. Maybe it wasn't, but I think it was talked about mandating the COVID jab for healthcare staff. Remember? Have a listen to our friend James O'Brien. I dug this out as well. I've got a bank of these. I've got thousands and thousands of MP3s I downloaded in the past three years. It's a great uh, resource to have, to be honest, because we can pull them out at any time during a programme. Listen. A fundamental right, and if other people, i.e. the government or workplace or whatever, start telling us um, but this, I'm sorry, we're going to have to impose this on your body because this no, but no, no one, no one's saying that. You can, you can, you can swerve the vaccine if you want, but don't bother coming back to work. Lovely guy, O'Brien. Nobody's telling you you have to have the jab. You're just going to lose your job, says O'Brien gleefully. He's grinning down the microphone at this guy. Yeah, but if workplaces start saying you can only work, they're not. Work they're not compromising you... your freedom to to refuse medicine. No, but but if workplaces start saying you can only work for us if you've had the jab yeah where's that going to end you could get well it's going to end with workplaces saying, saying that you can only work for us if you've had the jab yeah but what's supposed to be no, that's where it's going to end terry i've never used the c word on radio i'm not going to do it today but this maddens me i get very angry watching this and i think to myself it would be good for james o'brien if i never bumped into him you know what what about supermarkets if they start saying you can only shop here well then, then, then we'd have a then we'd have a conversation about that. But if ifs and buts were pots and pans, no, it's not the it's not the same thing at all. Because I mean, for a start, it is the same thing when society, when businesses, when employers tell people that they will lose their job unless they consent to being injected with an unproven, untried, uh, provably dangerous medicine that has no long term safety data to give you any assurance or to give you any trust in it but you must take it or you lose your job that's no society any decent person would want to be a part of but this so-called liberal was was begging for it couldn't wait for this to come in the contract between a shopkeeper and a customer is very different from the contract between a shopkeeper and a shop worker but but the but it's the same. No, no, no. It really employee. isn't. It doesn't become. It doesn't become the same principle if you keep saying it. It, it, it if you, the management can reserve the right to refuse admission to anyone they want, we've all seen that above the door in a pub, haven't we? Okay. Okay. Are we talking about private businesses? No, we're talking. We're not talking about anything, Terry, ex- except the employer having the right to say, "Don't come to work unless you've had a vaccine." Well, suppose the NHS. And you're talking about something very different. Yeah, but stop saying suppose. The NHS said that. If, yeah, if, if, that, that, if, this, if this comes in, if more and more private employees. Like, mate, if, the, if the NHS said you can't come to work unless you've been vaccinated, I, I, I would lead the applause for them every night of the flipping week. Yeah. Never mind, John. You'd lead the applause for them every night of the week if the NHS says you don't get to work unless you've had a vaccine. That's the guy. James O'Brien. Tell you what we'll do. I'll make a promise to you. 27 minutes past the hour. I'll, um, I'll drop in inserting audio clips from that particular station, but that programme anyway, because it is kind of maddening what they got away with. And they got away with it, you know. Ironically, the guy who should have lost his fucking job is James O'Brien. 
and any other presenter, any other journalist who, who didn't hold the government to account. You know what your job is? Let me share this with you before we talk about Irish radio. Let me share this with you. It's very simple, really, right? I worked in a very good newsroom with very good people. And the standard was this, and it was the same in every good newsroom in the world. When anything comes from government, anything at all, you, you assume that it's bullshit from the get-go. So when it comes off the, as it was back then, off the fax machine, you assume that it is absolute garbage. It's your job to hold the government to account or any authority any perceived authority. It tells you something, you disbelieve it as a starting point. Well, that's got to be bullshit. Let's find um, one or two people who are disagreeing with this. Let's find some dissent and let's get it on the radio. Now, the BBC and LBC would have known, would have known probably two weeks before Boris Johnson announced in that very sombre, very serious address in March of 2020 that the country was going into lockdown. They would have known a couple of weeks in, in, in advance. I'm not making that up. They would have known. We all knew. We knew it was coming, but they would have known. At that point, traditionally, what would have happened in the media is, is that you're horrified. First of all, you're horrified. Any real journalist is horrified. What? They're going to announce that people must stay at home, that companies must close, that schools must close. What, what are they basing this on? Where's the evidence? You're horrified. You can't believe it. This is totalitarianism, right? We can't have this. So you set out to ask a couple of quick questions. Right, who's advising the government? Right, Chris Whitty. Right, Jonathan Van Tam. Right, Patrick Valance. Right, that horrible Irish bitch, what's her name? Um, she heads up the UK uh, Health Security Agency now. Horrible woman. Can't think of her name. Uh, it'll come to me in a moment. Debbie Shridhar. All these idiots, right? So you say, right, so those people are advising the government. Now, you're the journalist. Stay with me for a minute. You, you immediately think, well, we can't have this. We can't have this. Right, there must be men and women of science who disagree with this. Let's get them on the air immediately. That is how simple journalism is at its most basic. At, at, that's entry-level stuff. What did James O'Brien do? What did Andrew Marr do on the BBC? Laura Kunzberg on the BBC? Emily Maitlis on the BBC? That scumbag whose name I can never remember who works for ITV? Peston, Robert Peston. What did they do? Did they do the basic stuff? Which is, well, this is a load of bollocks. That's the basic. This is a load of bollocks. What, they want to fuck people uh, by, by, by locking them in their homes? By, by t taking kids out of school? Really? We can't have this. We're supposed to be living in a liberal democracy. Constitutional monarchy. We can't have it. Let's find people who disagree. Did they do that? Fuck no, they didn't do that. What did they do? They parroted the government line. And I pick on O'Brien, that scumbag in London. I know I've used the word again, scumbag. But his counterparts in every, in, in every national station, television and radio in the country did exactly the same as him. They said, yeah, absolutely. And anybody who dared to dissent, anybody who dared to offer a counter-argument to it or an alternative to lockdown were ridiculed, they were kicked off of shows and it was made sure that they never got back on again. It's so simple, radio production. I used to be embarrassed when people would say to me, you're a brilliant, brilliant producer, and they would. This isn't David Brent now. People would. You're a brilliant producer. I won awards for radio production. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you're giving me an award for it. It's fucking simple. It couldn't be any easier. I've got a woman coming on from the Labour Party this morning. I'm going to assume that she's a fucking liar. That's what I'm fr from the word go, because she is, and they all are. And I'm going to try and pick holes in the argument or in the policy that she's here to talk about. It couldn't be simpler.
Now that went out the window a long time ago, but maybe it wasn't so apparent to people until the shit show of the last three years. Then it became apparent to people, oh my God, not only are they not doing their jobs, not only are they not questioning the governments and the government's scientific advisors, but they are actually actively going after anybody who questions it. Oh my God, is that fascism? It must be. And then, and now you're really going to fall asleep. To make matters worse, they started handing politicians their own television and radio shows. Wasn't it just wonderful? Do you know what? Not only are we not going to ask them questions, I've had this rant before, not only are we not going to put their feet to the fire, not only are we not going to turn them upside down by the ankles and shake them to see what falls out, no, we're going to give them their own radio and television shows. That's what's gone on. It is simple. Any one of you listening to this today could work in a in a newsroom producing a talk radio show with two or three simple absolutes and rules of thumb, rules you never deviate from. Everybody who comes on is a fucking liar. Expose their lies. It couldn't be simpler, he says, repeating himself for the 15th time. Simple, very simple. Very simple, right? Got the Prime Minister, yeah, he's a liar. What What's he coming on to talk about? Right, well, let's expose that. Let's get some facts Let's let's hammer them. No, no, they they went along with it, and now they're pretending none of it ever happened, and they're accusing government politicians of gaslighting people and convincing people that their eyes are deceiving them and that the observable reality is in fact wrong. And I've just played you a, a, a whole heap of examples there from James O'Brien. The time is twenty six and a half minutes to the top of the hour. It's time for a tune. When we come back, I'm going to tell you why Ireland is being used as a dry run for what's coming down the line for every country in the world. This is the Richie Allen Show, Wednesday's programme. Right, I want to get out of this because I don't have too much time. David Bowie and, or Bowie, depending on your preference, let's dance on the Richie Allen show. I want you to listen to this. It's very important, right? I was listening to the flagship RTE radio show Morning Ireland today and a guy called Eddie Casey was on there. Now, he's the chief economist for the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. It's a think tank of sorts, right? And he he went on this programme to warn that climate change mitigation will cost the Irish government billions of euro a year. And you'll hear him tell the presenter in a moment that the cost could actually uh, outre or sorry, it could go over what the annual budget would be for the country. So Ireland's annual budget, somewhere between four and five billion euro, right? By the way, just in case you don't know this, I'm sure you do, the Irish um, politicians, the Irish government, the Irish political parties are are in no way in control of what happens in Ireland. Decisions are made in Brussels. And when an Irish um, finance minister and his prime minister, the Taoiseach, wants to to introduce a budget, a fiscal budget for the year 2024, it's got to be signed off by the European Union. Ireland is not a sovereign nation. It it, it hasn't been for, for a very, very long time. So I want you to listen to this. This guy goes on to talk about the cost to the country, the financial cost, the monetary cost of reaching net zero 
and the implications of that. This is so important because what you hear or will hear in the next few minutes is coming to every country in the world unless it's stopped. And it's chilling in the extreme. You'll hear the presenter first, Zanetti Casey, Chief Economist for the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Billions and billions. The final figure is unknown, but it is several hundred billion euro. That is what achieving a 50% cut to carbon emissions here by 2030 and getting to zero emissions by 2050 will cost the state. That's according to the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. It has published its findings this morning and one of the authors of the report is here now, Dr Eddie Casey, who is the Council's Chief Economist. You're very welcome. There is no overall figure for the cost in your report. Is it just too difficult to get an accurate number at this point? Okay, Eddie Casey. Uh, sort of. So there's lots of different parts to this. And um, we can probably think of three big areas where it's going to hit the public finances. So the first is in terms of revenues. So we're going to see lots of revenues just basically burn up, lots of taxes. Things like petrol, diesel, the tax we take in on that, and fossil fuels, but also on new cars, motor tax. All of these things are linked to emissions. And so as we see less and less emissions and less fossil fuel use, we'll see lots of those taxes disappear. And we estimate, How much are you talking about? So about two and a half billion by 2030 in today's terms. Um, so that's a lot of money. Um, that's half the budget of Ireland. So he's saying because of attempts to mitigate climate change, because we get rid of of diesel cars and petrol cars, the government won't be able to to take in that revenue, that fuel duty revenue, right, and other revenue. So it's going to be, it's going to have a shortfall in its um in in its uh, purses basically in in its account of two and a half billion. Listen, but also on the spending side, we can see big impacts. So that's the second big area. So, so sorry, just two and a half billion. By 2030 or each year? Until each 20, year. Each year. Yeah. So on average, out to 2030, we expect they'll lose two and a half billion per annum on average, but it's going to be growing. Uh, so after 2030, it'll gradually rise to about four to four and a half billion. Per uh, year. Per year, again. So this is a permanent hit that we're seeing coming down the tracks and we need to start planning for it. Well, how do you plan for that? I mean, are you talking new taxes, new charges? Now, before he answers whether we're talking about new taxes and charges, listen to what he just said there. The budget for the country annually, somewhere between four and five billion, because each year the loss of revenue will be increasing year on year on year. By 2030, the government will have a shortfall of somewhere between four and four and a half billion quid. The budget is somewhere between four and five billion quid. You're thinking what I'm thinking, right? Where will the Irish government get the money, okay, to to run the country effectively? to run public services and everything else, right? So, more taxes, she said. Will there be new taxes to offset the loss from the revenue that you've lost due to fuel duty and whatnot? What does he say? Uh, so, that's one one option. We don't advise on exactly how they want to approach this. It's up to policymakers and, and the political system But you mention in your report things like congestion charges, charging drivers by distance and vehicle weight. They're not your suggestions. They're, They're the not conditional taxation. She's a bit stupid, the presenter. There won't be any congestion charges or anything like that or parking charges for local authorities because there won't be any effing cars. I don't think she's too bright to you. So they won't be able to levy congestion charges on people, at least not in the long term. But, but, exactly. But these are the types of things other countries have looked at. So you might come up with new taxes like congestion charges to, to replace the taxes that you're going to be losing out on. But you might just decide that you do it on the income tax side or wherever. Did IQs just drop all of a sudden? On the one hand, he's saying you're going to lose billions annually because you're not claiming fuel duty and motor taxation and all that sort of stuff, right? Because you're 
reducing the amount of cars on the road very seriously, but we can impose congestion charges. That's a bit stupid, isn't it? As well. The other thing you could do, of course, is cut spending. So it's really up to them to decide how they're going to do this. And we need to plan. That's Cut spending. That's very important. So a government that doesn't have any money because it can't bring in any revenues or because a huge chunk of revenue has suddenly been denied to it, to the government, what, what can they do? He said maybe they'll cut spending. Imagine. Cut spending on public services, on schools, on hospitals, on transport. Yeah. The answer to all this, it's really a, a case of planning rather than uh, scaremongering. So you, 15 minute cities, right? You're saying these figures of 4 billion per year after 2030, they're not included anywhere in any government figures no. at the moment. So the official budgetary forecasts go out to 2026. And it's really at that point in time, 2027, 2028, 2029, that we start to see all this ramp up. And we use the work from University College Cork that does great modelling work in terms of how people will uh, adapt. And we can see that the revenues really would start to drop off at that point as we make a big switch to electric vehicles and retrofitting. So you're talking about revenue. Now, there's other areas as well where the cost is very clear, and that's to do with grants and supports and dealing with extreme weather events. Wow, extreme weather events. So again, Again, she says, look, there are other costs. So while the government isn't making any money, it isn't taking in much revenue, it's also now incurring new costs. Costs like having to award grants to people, like farmers and whatnot. So you've got to find even more money to pay people not to do certain things as time goes on because you want to reach net zero by 2050. You see the perfect storm that is uh, gathering pace here. You get this, right? So she says, extreme weather events. We're talking about Ireland, right? Exactly. So I mentioned the retrofitting there and that's a massive part of it, but there's also uh, supports to sectors that'll be badly hit. Um, And these things probably won't happen so that we won't make the changes we need to make unless it's incentivized to some extent, because it's just not financially viable for people to do it and there'll be cash constrained. So really what is probably going to have to have to happen is that the government will have to step in in some way. We estimate the cost there in today's terms could be anywhere between one and a half to three billion. But wow, one and a half to three billion. So the government is going to have to step in and incentivise people to do what they're told in order to reach net zero targets. But the government doesn't have any money. It isn't taking in money. You know, I did commerce in secondary school for two years. Right, I worked with ledgers, uh, profit and loss, balance sheets. This is, this is crazy. So the Irish government is not going to have any money. So what I want you to start thinking about, dear listener, is, is what's going to happen at that point? Where is the Irish government going to get its money from? Now, think about this. Really deeply think about this, right? If we imagine that the world is going cashless, which it is, and moving towards central bank digital currencies, think about the Irish government as you would think about any other country. So imagine this is Spain or Switzerland or China, well, maybe not China, uh, Italy, Portugal, whatever, right? So revenue that you have been taking forever has suddenly been closed off to you because of the things you have imposed on your citizens to offset climate change, which isn't happening. So because you've been told to impose these things on your citizens by the European Union, by the way, the European Union has told you you've got to do this, and if you don't, you'll be fined and punished. We'll hear about that in a minute. So the European Union tells Ireland, which it owns, lock, stock and barrel, you will impose these things on your citizens, but at a huge financial cost to yourself, dear Ireland. And at the same time, you're not taking in as much revenue as you used to from your own citizens. We're going to tell you to incentivise 
certain other projects, to pay farmers not to do this, to pay other people not to do this, the Irish government will say, well, we don't have any money. What do you think will happen at the point where the Irish government says we're bankrupt? We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's hear a bit more from Eddie Casey. There's big assumptions Again, there. per year. Again, per year. So these are permanent hits. Permanent hits. Permanent hits to the Irish exchequer, right? Listen. And if you take those two estimates together, you're looking at four to five and a half billion. This is about the size of the budget that we're uh, debating over going into next week. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like trying to find another full budget and how we're going to replace these revenues, how we're going to find the supports that we need to actually enable the transition. Amazing stuff, right? So we need four to four and a half to five billion to run the country. That's what we need, right? Um, We now need four and a half billion quid to deal with climate change, but we we don't have that. And the four and a half billion that we needed to run the country, that's not really there either because we don't have the revenue. I know I'm repeating myself, but because I'm because I've got mathematical dyslexia, which I really do, I've got to say this out loud several times so I understand it myself, because I get carried away with this. But what I'm telling you is 100% true. This is dystopia on steroids. And I'm not going to swear or use misogynistic language to describe the presenter, but she's sitting there while a guy is telling her that tyranny, totalitarianism and fascism is coming to her country and she's not batting an eyelid. And so it's a massive amount of money that we need to start planning for. We need to start planning for it. Right, what do we do? Which industry is the most uh, costly? Farming, I bet you. So I know because I listened earlier. That's a really good question. If you look at it over the very long term, uh, the supports to farming, we estimate, could be really, really large, uh, but also retrofits. Uh, So in the short term, you see a big increase in costs related to the switch to vehicles, electric vehicles, and you see a lot for industry like the cement sector. But over the much longer term, what really dominates the cost that we're going to face is really the farming sector and retrofitting. These are massive challenges. Do you have a cost to the farming? Well, if we take uh, the overall cumulative cost right out to 2050, they could be between 80 to 90 percent farming and uh, and uh, the retrofits. Farming within that could be about a third of the overall cost that we face in terms of accumulating all those annual costs right out to 2050. So it's, it's potentially... Is that due to a loss of income, as farmers would see it? Exactly. And so really the question here is, you know, is the government going to step in and support those farmers be- who lose income because they're going to potentially have to switch behaviour away from, say, dairy, from beef, into other types of uh, farming? It's tyranny, isn't it? I mean, it's tyranny. It's almost... I, I listen to this every day. I've been doing it for the best part of 25 years listening to this stuff, I can't believe my ears. He's talking about breaking the back of Irish farmers where to a point where they're not producing produce, um, telling them to retrofit their farms and their equipment and their machinery, telling them to farm something else, which is going to have obviously huge implications for diet in Ireland and Ireland's ability to be sustainable. We can use sustainable in a positive sense, dear listener, you know, for Ireland to be self-sufficient when it comes to growing food. So we're going to destroy Ireland's ability to be self-sufficient in producing its own food, while at the same time imposing costs in the billions on whichever government is in, and ultimately the taxpayer. Does this sound insane to you? And the question is, will they do that for the rest of the farmers' lives, or will it be for a short term? We just don't know. Oh my God. Will it be for the rest of their lives or in the short term? Well, obviously... It'll be for the rest of their lives. There's more of this. And if you think you've heard insanity and every other adjective I've used to describe this, 
Wait till you hear this. So big decisions. And in terms of extreme weather. It- so big decisions, says that wench. That wench. Worse than James O'Brien. What a wench. What a wench. I mean, he's, he, he's laying it out to her. That the population of Ireland, and by definition, everybody on planet Earth, are going to be enslaved. Completely enslaved. Economically destroyed. You will own nothing and be happy. He's spelling it out to her. This dizzy bitch, I said I wouldn't use misogynistic language. And rather than say to him, as Tom Cruise famously said, are you out of your fucking mind? What's wrong with you? Is what a decent presenter would say. Listen to more of this, it's mad stuff. Events and planning for that, but also dealing with the impact of those extreme weather events. What extreme weather events in Ireland? What, like, what? The west of Ireland gets 392 days of rain a year. I know there are 365 days in a year. And nobody ever said that was extreme. They've been getting pissed on morning, noon and night ever since Moses was in short trousers and nobody ever said it was climate change. But outside of the west of Ireland where it never stops raining, the rest of the country, we've got a maritime climate, we've got some of the most fertile agricultural land in the world as a result of it, and it's pretty dull and grim and once every four summers you get a couple of decent weeks. What is this mad cow talking about when she talks about extreme weather events? What are you saying? Yes, we've been through a summer of extremes, um, not just in Europe, but in Ireland as well. We've seen one of the wettest July's ever, uh, record temperatures there. And what we can see really in the long-term data is Ireland is clearly getting wetter, it's getting warmer, and there's more extreme uh, variation. It's not getting wetter and warmer, Ireland. It isn't. It was always wet. It's not getting warmer, and it couldn't be getting any wetter. The weather. And what we'll have to do to adapt to that really is build things like flood defences. We'll have to plan for wildfires. Plan for wildfires in Ireland. And we'll have to look at what... That's more money, of course. That, that's more. That's hundreds of millions and maybe billions to build flood defences and to chop down trees so that they won't burn. You know, to... What is the term? What is the term they use? To decommission towns will decommission that town to be close to that forest there. We we want to we want to rewild half the country. And these coastal western towns will have to decommission them. And that's going to cost hundreds of million, if not billions as well. And what I want you to keep in mind, dear listener, is when the Irish government says, but we don't have the fucking money to do that, what happens then? I can't explain it. As eloquent as I can sometimes be, other times I don't sound very eloquent. I lose the run of myself because I get a bit excited. We all do. But I can be very eloquent, loquacious, loquacious verbose. That's ironic, mispronouncing loquacious. Um, what happens then? Do you think the World Economic Forum steps in then? Do you think the World Bank steps in then and says, don't worry about it? Tell you what we're going to do, Ireland. We're going to give you a universal basic income. Because we've talked about universal basic income in the context of people will be paid not to work and will be given 1500 or £2,000 a month, a universal basic income, and that will come with it, attached with it, a set of rules, you know, social crediting. We've thought about it in that context. But what if Ireland says, and Ireland is, by the way, the testing ground for all of this, um, we, what? Well, hang on. So we can't take the fuel duty and other taxes that we would have taken. We can't do that. Congestion charges. Local authorities can't function. They don't get parking revenues. We lose billions. And now you're asking us to spend money we don't have on preparing flood defences and preparing for wildfires that are never going to happen. Retrofitting farms. All these things. We don't have the money. Do you think it's possible? 
probable that at that stage the oligarchs or the real the the the, the real men and women the, the ones whose names we don't know will step in and say we'll give you a universal basic income to cover all of that don't worry about it you just deal with the population do you think that's a possibility? Have a listen to this. Who is going to foot the bill for damages that might happen from time to time? And what cost are you putting on those damages? So this is incredibly uncertain. Again, she's not... Do, do you know, and, and, and please, and listen, I've got sick skin. You know I have. Please email me, send me messages, call me a boring, repetitive bastard. I don't mind. But I've only got you to talk to between five and seven. So, so you'll have to forgive the, the repetitiveness. You'll have to forgive it. I'm a journalist. I'm a presenter. I'm argumentative. I like an argument. To listen to that bastard sitting opposite him, this guy Casey, and not expressing any incredulity at this, not expressing any horror. As I said, are you out of your fucking mind, man? What are you talking about? No, no. And, and, and what will we do about the wildfires? And, and where will we get the money from, Eddie? What we looked at was the historical damages associated with our events in Ireland. And there were about 0.1% of national income, which is about 250 million. That could double if we move in line with other European countries. But it's anyone's guess how high it could get. Wow. And? The other area is EU penalties for not meeting our targets. Now, we've already experienced quite a, a number of those penalties, but is there any sign of those decreasing? Countess Markovich, I could name them. I could name the heroes of the 1916 uprising. They must be turning in their graves. And if we don't do what we're told now, Eddie, we'll get punished by the European Union, won't we? No. So there's a, a certain inevitability about a lot of the costs we face, right? One is that we'll have to make this transition. If we don't, we'll be hitting these fines. Uh, not really fines. We have to buy credits from other countries that overperform, but they might not want to sell them to us. They might want to bank them so that they have less to do in later years. Um, so uh, the cost that we see there are about 350 million a year. Can I just stop that and rewind it a little bit? Did you hear what he said there? I talked about this two years ago and nobody believed it. Listen to this. Not really fines. We have to buy credits from other countries. that We open. have to buy credits. The European Union might not necessarily fine Ireland for non-compliance in tackling climate change. The European Union will say you've got to buy some carbon credits from a country that is doing better than you are doing in tackling climate change. So take, for example, we have Denmark here. Denmark is doing much better. It's reaching its targets and it's got some CO2 emissions to spare. Imagine. Imagine. We allowed Denmark to, as a result of its activities, we allowed Denmark to to create several hundred billion tonnes of CO2. Right, this is the allowance we gave Denmark. But Denmark didn't use all of that CO2. So Ireland, you can spend 50 or 60 billion euro with Denmark. They'll give you some carbon credits and we will allow you to do certain things. You know, we might allow you to upgrade, I don't know, a motorway just outside Dublin or something like that. Are you listening to this stuff? Are you listening to this? It's, 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 yeah. Fines. Uh, not really fines. We have to buy credits from other countries that overperform, but they might not want to sell them to us. They might want to bank them so that they have less to do in later years. Um, so uh, the cost that we see there are about 350 million a year out to 2030. And Amazing. Denmark might not want to sell us any carbon credits, meaning that we cannot go ahead with a vital infrastructure project because we don't have the CO2 allowance to do it. 
Denmark says, no, you can't have some of our CO2 allowance because we might want to hold on to it so that we don't have to do as much to our citizens in the future. We don't have to impose so much tyranny on our citizens in the future. Therefore, we can't sell you some carbon credits, Ireland. And doubling thereafter. And that's in today's terms again. Mad. There's only a little bit more of this. How vital is the carbon tax? So that's a good question. I don't think it's a a big deal in terms of the money it raises, but what it's trying to do really is change behaviour. So that's the real goal of the carbon tax. Um, The the losses that we're going to experience in revenues are across the board. And we see the big losses are on excise duties, on on petrol and diesel, on VAT uh, moving to electricity where it has a lower charge. So it's less the carbon tax, which we actually in our modelling, assume moves up to five times what it is today. Does it need to keep rising? Um, it 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 probably would be the advice of most most climate scientists of most. Um, people. Do you know what that bastard is doing there, Anya, whatever her name is, the presenter? She's not asking him questions; she's prompting him. She's prompting him. She might as well be an actress. She might as well be, although I shouldn't mention them in the same breath, Jean Anne Crowley prompting an actor on stage or an actress. She's prompting him, not asking him questions, prompting him. And will the carbon tax go up and up, will it? People on the on the green side of things, but really, in terms of the revenue impact, this is not where the, the game is. You mm. know, it's more on the other side. The other side. The cost of inaction. I mean, that's what is always missing from the discussion, at least in, in some instances, where you're looking at the cost of achieving the cuts to our carbon emissions. But what is the cost if we don't? So again, it's those non-compliance uh, uh, charges that we're going to face. And eventually we will have to do this because it's it's an EU law. It's a requirement that we have to meet these targets. And if anything, Europe seems to be getting more ambitious in terms of the reductions that are, that are required. Yeah, Europe is asking for even more and more and more reductions. Bankrupt countries will bankrupt countries by by imposing upon them this this ideology by imposing upon them because it's enshrined in law. Do you remember me mentioning last week on the program that six Portuguese kids are taking thirty two countries to the European Court of Human Rights, including Ireland, for not doing enough to mitigate the impact of climate change. Six Portuguese kids are going to say that wildfires, which happened in Portugal in 2017, were because 32 countries, including Ireland, don't give a shit about climate change and didn't do enough. Yeah, and they're going to win that case. And it'll be enshrined in law. That'll be the precedent. You know, they will convince the European Court of Human Rights that because Ireland didn't reduce its CO2 emissions before 2017, fires were sparked in... In, in, on hillsides in Portugal and that um, makes it very difficult for these young kids to have a quality of life in Portugal. Honest to God, this is happening. I reckon this is the only radio show in the world, the only serious one anyway. I'm not bragging when I say this, I'm saying this because I'm utterly depressed about it. It's the only one in the world that's talking about this in these terms. This is what's happening. It's staggering, right? You can see that Europe seems to be quite uneasy and it's had a, an extreme weather uh, summer. It didn't. It didn't. Europe had a heat wave. That's all. So the mood music seems to be moving in the direction of Ireland having to do potentially more. So I don't think we're going to wait and bite our time out of this. I think we have to face up to it and be honest. I have to face up to it and be honest. That guy was Eddie Casey, the chief economist for the Irish Fiscal Advi- Advisory Council. That's the scariest interview 
that you'll ever hear in your life and spoken in such a matter-of-fact, nonchalant way, prompted beautifully at times by the presenter, this is the tyranny. The European Union and its allies are going to bankrupt every country in the world by forcing them to make catastrophic changes, catastrophic to the people of those countries in terms of completely transforming the way they live, the way they work, the way they travel and the way they farm. That is going to leave countries with massive budget deficits. They won't have any money. And at the same time, while they don't have any money, because remember, it's not just the fuel duty and everything else. It's all the other taxations they're not getting because people are not going to their town centres anymore and having a, a meal and a few drinks or going to the shopping mall. No, they'll be giving it all to Jeff Bezos. So, so massive surpluses. Jesus, we don't have the money to run the country. That's bad enough. While you don't have any money to run the country, we're going to ask you to find even more money to do all of the things you need to do to mitigate climate change. Wow. So complete financial collapse. And at that point, this is just my opinion, don't take this as fact because it isn't. At that point, in come the real baddies. And they say, I'll tell you what, Ireland will give you a universal basic income. We'll give you a subsistence living. And we're going to have to do this for the foreseeable future. Otherwise, the children of your country won't have a planet in 50 years' time. The only thing is, you're going to have to police them. You're going to have to make sure that they do what they're told. And that's it in a nutshell. Spooky stuff that. Morning Ireland RTE Today. You'll find that at rte.ie forward slash radio. I gave you pretty much the entire interview there. And that's coming to a town and to a country near you right soon. Let's talk about the fake shake, Mazar Mahmood. Jonathan Royal will be with me and he'll be with me in about three minutes time. This is going to be very interesting indeed. Thanks for listening, by the way. You're with the Richie Allen Show, Wednesday's edition. One, body's defences are under constant attack from flu, respiratory diseases and the common cold. Now more than ever, it is essential that you have a robust immune system and as we all know, vitamin D3 plays an essential role in this. Immunex 365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin. This unique combination of nutrients ensures efficient bioavailability of D3 thereby giving your immune system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. For your peace of mind, all NutriHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Go to NutriHealth365.com to get yours now. That's NutriHealth365.com. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at RichieAllen.co.uk. Now, one of the most popular series on Amazon Prime at the moment is The Fake Shake. It follows the story of Mazar Mahmood, The Fake Shake. He was given this moniker when he went undercover and posed as the Arab leader lots of times, right? The show looks into the unorthodox methods he used of obtaining information, which ultimately led to his downfall. Now, while he became known for spearheading 
investigations which did lead to some criminal convictions and while he was celebrated for doing that the fact is on many many other occasions he entrapped and destroyed lives the lives of celebrities and others people who ended up in prison right this is really important in the week or or two weeks since Rupert Murdoch has stepped away from managing operations um at um at at at, at, at his company News Corp I want to introduce you to, not for the first time, he's been on the programme in the past talking to us about how the media, uh, you, the, the techniques used by the media, right, that's the entire media, television, radio, films, magazines, the hypnotic and seductive techniques they use to basically enslave populations and to get people to believe things that they should know are in fact patently false. Now he's got an amazing story to tell. In fact, we touched on this one of the uh, times he was on uh, about the fake Sheikh Mazar Mahmoud. Let's welcome back to the program the legendary stage uh, hypnotist and street hypnotist. It's uh, none other than Jonathan Royal. Jonathan, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Richie. Um... I must take you on tour with me. Thank you for that great introduction. No, it's true. It's good to have you on. And uh, we did touch on this some years ago. Your interest in this story, in this man who ultimately went to prison for um, for what he did, but but I know there are those who would argue not for long enough. Um, it goes on to this day, your attempt to clear your name. When did you meet the fake Sheikh Mazar Mahmood and what were the circumstances around the meeting? Yeah, this sound this will sound batshit crazy to a lot of people. Um, and without them fully understanding my life, which we don't have time to explain. So I will say up front that they can see the evidence that backs this up as not being some strange fantasist at circusofthemind.net. Because the thing is, my lifestyle being born on the circus, uh, growing up in show business and seeing from the inside, as we've talked about on previous um, shows of yours, Richie, the fact that I saw from the inside the distortion, the lies, the fabrication and the manipulation of the media, uh, mainstream media in terms of television, radio, newspapers, magazines, with the sole motive of um, controlling the mass populace's viewpoint on things led me down, led me kind of away from what I was destined to do, being a stage magician and illusionist, and led me into a world where, for my own personal reasons, which I explain at that website, I was bullied at school and whatnot. So I I learned hypnotherapy techniques to sort my own head out. As I learned them, I learned about how people can be suggestible and manipulated and the long story cut short, and I know that leaves out so much, so other people I'll have to either, you can either type in Jonathan Royal, Richie Allen Show, and you'll find the past episodes to get the bigger picture, or go to circusofthemind.net for the background. But basically, my upbringing, my lifestyle, and my background led me to become aware of the lies and manipulation of the media. And in 1990. About 1994 onwards, uh, until 1998, when, for a good four years, until the shit hit the fan, excuse the language, I set out to make a mockery of the British media and expose the fact that basically they, their, their regard for the truth was certainly back then 
and I would argue is still the same in a lot of arenas now, was not the main motive. The motive was selling newspapers, getting viewing figures, and selling advertising space. And keeping people dumbed down, ultimately. Yes, all of those together. And I did this by coming up with the most ridiculous of stories, everything from being a man who had a collection of pet snails to being addicted to Quavers, Chris. <laughs> um, you name it, the most ridiculous things you can think of. I came up with them and pushed the envelope to see if the media would print them. And if they would print them, would I end up on the radio and on TV? And you know what? I was, I was actually both shocked by how easily they fell for it and disappointed as well. Because um, I thought, surely that they would have at least done some basic checking. And I encountered people who I could tell by their body language recognised me from a story, a fake story I'd done a few months earlier. They recognised me, and yet they didn't say a word. They didn't go, oh, you're the Quaver Chris guy called Dave, but yeah. now you're stood in front of me saying you're called Nigel. Um, Isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? Can we can we just double down on this so our listeners? Yeah, I know they're not stupid, but this is so important. So Jonathan, in his genius, decides to demonstrate just how crap the press is and just how uninterested yeah. in the truth it is, and it's only interested in sensationalism. So he creates a series of fake stories, ridiculous mm -hmm. stories, thinking that each one. I remember we first spoke about this. You said to me, you thought each one did rumble, yeah, but they if didn't. If they ever asked, if they'd ever said. Are you truly called that, or is this real? Yeah. I always had this motive that I would turn around and go, no, it's bull bullshit. You yeah. can actually be the paper that exposes all the ones I've done before and I'd have told them. But it never happened. But, but they, they, they kept printing this stuff, and to make it even funnier, sometimes you felt that they must have recognised you, but they kept yeah. stum and they just printed the next crazy story. Yeah. Fantastic. That's how, that's how ridiculously sad it is. It's explained yeah. in more detail at the links at circusofthemind.net. But that is, and, and this snowballed to the point of how far can I push this envelope? And then I got told by my publicist at the time, who it turns out, um, I found out in the past couple of years. I'd been paid money by the fake shake Muslim Mamu, but I didn't I didn't know that at the time, but now I do. Anyway, he he planted I thought he was giving me an idea of where to go with this um crazy story idea, which crazy is brilliant. story yeah. stuff. And that's how it felt, but now I realise looking back on it with what I found out in the past couple of years that he was actually planting a seed in my head because he realised that how easy it would be. And the seed that was planted was Look at the news of the world every Sunday, these stories from the fake Sheikh Maza Mahmood. All you need to do, he's done stories regularly about people apparently offering, you know, being pimps to celebrities, but the supplying call girls to the fake Sheikh. And so I went and looked, this seed had been planted, and I went and looked, and sure enough, he'd done multiple stories where the only story was XYZ celebrity or politician or whatever had had a meeting with the fake shape, bragged about whatever, but ultimately the guilty secret sin that made the story was that they'd arranged some call girls, some hookers, some prostitutes to visit the fake shape. Now, here's the thing. To ring up a local massage parlor and book a couple of girls to come 
to give a massage to somebody. And if anything else happens between consenting adults later, especially if you as the person who made the phone call is not in the room, then you've not broken any laws. I know we could have a discussion about ethics, but forget that for a minute. The point is you've not broken any law. No, this is classic entrapment, what he was doing. It's classic entrapment. It's uh, The way, it would, the way yeah. it would be written up, Louis, as though that guy was some kind of big-time pimp. So it occurred to me, hang on. Hang on, Jonathan. Bye. So Hang on. So, so the news of the world would then run a story using the yeah. fake shake as the source to say that the celebrity was basically a pimp and was using the call girls and all of that. That's what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Where in actual fact, all they've done is perhaps wrong, being manipulated, coerced into ringing a number for a local massage parlor, which anyone who watches the fake shake uh, documentary on Amazon will go, well, how could you be coerced into that? Well, the prime example is my friend, uh, Emma Morgan, who... You know, she basically, all she did was go to somebody who the fake sheikh introduced her to and said, go to this person using money that the fake sheikh gave her, okay, otherwise it couldn't have happened, and picked up and then delivered a small packet of cocaine. Now, I know there's people who go, well, that means she did something wrong, but you need to see the documentary to see that. Yeah, absolutely. So, she was manipulated, she was coerced, and Steve Grayson, who was involved in that, um, uh, uh, who was employed by Mahmood at the time, um, who was involved in that, is on the documentary, and he openly said, basically, Mahmood was all elements of the supply chain, and uh, Emma did nothing wrong, it was just made to look that way. And what we have and here, what... what we have here is we have the tabloid, the biggest tabloid newspaper in the entire world, by the way. Yeah. Uh, because the News of the World sold more copies than any other tabloid in the United States or anywhere else. Basically inventing news stories, uh, creating um, storyboards, uh, writing this stuff out and then setting up well-known people, sometimes very well-known, sometimes less well-known, and then destroying their lives with big front page splashes on on Sunday and this guy was behind it all and they went to extreme lengths to conceal this bastard because that's what he is his identity didn't they I mean nobody knew who this guy was for a long time they didn't although I actually did when I first met him because um, I'd been shown a picture of him and that suggestion was put in my head so I so I, I sent an anonymous letter in 1998 to the News of the World making out that children's television presenter as I was at the time, under the name Alex Leroy and David Williams, uh, former stage names, was um, a big-time criminal and pimp. And I put a telephone number on it that was a burner SIM card. So I knew that if that phone rang, I was getting called by the news of the world, more than likely by Mazam because that's who I addressed this anonymous thing to. You took a big risk doing that, though, didn't you, when you look back at it? I mean, you had, you had quite a bit to lose. I should have mentioned the TV work you did. I mean, that was a big risk. Yeah. I mean, I know you wanted to expose this louser, because that's all he is. Looking this... back, I was an idiot. Look, I was a little 20, bit. I was, a little I, was bit yeah. I was 22 years of age, and I thought I could take on the, uh, news of the, world. the most powerful, uh, richest newspaper in the world. Uh, and and uh, It's just laughable. But nonetheless, I tried and I very nearly succeeded because I did get that phone call. So I knew that I was getting called by the news of the world, 
when I went to the first meeting, I recognised the person from the picture that I'd acquired. And so I knew I was dealing with Maza Mahmood, the fake shake. And everything I said, I was recording as well. Only audio recording. They were video recording. But I was audio recording because my intention was to let them run the story, make a phone call, get some girls there. But I wouldn't be there. So I'd not broken any laws. And then they'd run the story about me apparently being a pimp. And then I could take the recordings I had to an alternative newspaper, um, such as The Guardian, uh, for example. And and expose them for they, what they are. Yeah. Yeah, and expose the fact that they printed lies and distorted things and put them out of context and whatnot. Unfortunately, things didn't go to plan because I did not know in 1998 the level that the corruption dishonesty and illegal techniques were. I just thought they lied about things and distorted things. Unfortunately, that was my downfall. Because of this, the story didn't appear. The girls, the girls I rang up, nothing happened. And then I got coerced into going to another meeting with the fake shake. So I did. But in the meantime, one of his associates behind the scenes was telling me that the fake shake wanted X, Y, and Z. And at the first meeting, he mentioned counterfeit money. So I bragged because I knew that I could say whatever I wanted because I was recording and I could prove that my intention was to expose his dishonesty and lies. And I went, oh, yeah, I can get that counterfeit money. And he said, can you? And I reached into my pocket and all I had on me was three pound coins. We were talk he was talking about fake pound coins. And I gave him these three genuine pound coins that I got uh, in change at the bar in that hotel earlier. And I handed them over and said, they're probably the best fakes you've ever seen. And he said, yeah, they are. Well, there's a good reason for that. That's because the coins were genuine. They were genuine. But here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in, he then decided that he wanted to He'd found out. I did not know at the time. Here's the key. I've got to start at the end, actually, otherwise listeners are going to get confused. In the past two years, it's come to light and come to my knowledge, and the evidence has been provided to me very kindly by um, researchers and stuff that's come out in the high court phone hacking cases, that there were receipts with my name on proving that private investigators have been paid the surfaces of unlawful information gathering and phone hacking. And I didn't know that until the past couple of years. But the moment I did, I realized something. This meant that they were listening to my voicemail messages, following me and all manner of other things. So they were on so to they, you from the word go. They, knew, they yeah. knew that I knew who he was. They knew that I was intending to expose them. Right, and you didn't know that. To any length. I didn't know that at the time, so they were going to any lengths they could to silence me. Now, hang on, the let me go back. Let me go back to something because yeah. when, when the 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 initial sting didn't work out, you said mm. that the first one that you wanted to spring on on the shake, you said that that didn't work out. But then you said he coerced you into a meeting. How how did he do that? What did he use oh, to coerce you with? I kept getting phone calls from behind the scenes uh, from my former publicist, um, and but also from one of my moves associates that I won't name just in case because of ongoing legal proceedings. Um, but 
the suggestion was that if I didn't come to another meeting, things could be very bad for me. Now, they did this in character as law. It could be bad for my showbiz career. Because right. people who watch the Amazon um, documentary will say Emma Morgan was promised the dream of working in Dubai and all this. John Alford, the former London's burning and rain jail actor who was stitched up by the fake shake, he was promised a film with Robert De Niro. I was promised television presenting working in Dubai. I knew it was bullshit. Because I knew I was dealing with You were stinging is, them, yeah. You knew. You yeah, knew his, it was his modest operandi was the same with everybody. It was entrapment through and through. But behind the scenes, one of his associates, one of his team suggested, because they were still playing the part, um, that it'd be really bad for me if I didn't go to another meeting. And I, in my head, I thought, you know what? I may as well go, because then finally the story might appear and I can then take my recordings to another newspaper and expose the dishonesty and lies. Well, this is where it got backfired on me. I didn't know they were 10 steps ahead of me at that time. The evidence has only come to light of that in the past couple of years. But I was basically put in a position where I felt that it, this would be worse if I didn't do something. It would have been a waste of time. So I went to another meeting and I was confronted before that meeting with the information by one of his associates of where I could acquire 1,000 counterfeit pound coins for 400 pounds. And then I end up in this meeting and there's a key thing that I'm leaving out that I'll mention in a minute because people will go, well, you still could have said no. Why did you, why did you do it? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. So he gives me 400 pounds up front. So without having given me the money at the time, I didn't have a spare 400 quid. So that wouldn't have, it couldn't have happened without them giving the money up front, which in itself is them inciting a crime. They told me where to get the stuff from. Basically, they were all elements of the supply chain, the same way that anyone who watches the Fake Shake documentary about um, uh, on Amazon at the minute and sees Emma Morgan's story. It was the same thing happening. Yeah, but you tell me this. I can't get my head around this. Jo Jonathan yeah. Royal, um, stage magician, stage hypnotist, uh, children's television presenter. You tell me how you thought that by taking his 400 quid to go and yeah. buy the counterfeit money, how you could use that to stitch him up? Because presumably, you know, it must have occurred to you that he can just say, well, well, I believe this television presenter to be dishonest. Exactly. Right. Because I because I was recording things, albeit only audio. All the other stuff, yeah. So I could prove, and I could also prove that I'd sent that anonymous um, letter and whatnot. The thing is that I figured that I would be afforded the public interest journalism, journalistic license, they call it, okay? Which is the reason why Mahmood never got charged for buying cocaine or buying counterfeit coins or buying illegal stuff. Because apparently what he was doing was in the course of public interest. Yeah, journalism. yeah, yeah. That's, that, that was the argument. It's in the public interest to know if the woman from Brookside or the guy from uh, the football team, if they like to take a bit of cocaine, it's in yeah. the public interest. Yeah, which it isn't, of course. Unfortunately. But, but that, that was the argument. No. Um, and it's more nuanced. Um, he would argue that he'd been tipped off that the person was a drug dealer. Okay. Now the thing is, because he was a journalist, his sources were protected. Protected. Yeah, he doesn't have to. He, he doesn't have to tell to a judge. Them. Correct. Correct. Whereas, if that was the police, they would have had to have disclosed to the defence team of anyone accused of stuff 
the sources so they could be brought into question. And that never happened. And that's why it took until the collapse of the Talisa trial for the truth to start to come out. Well, basically, I figured I'd be able to go, look, I can prove I was recording stuff. I can prove that I engineered this. I can prove I knew who he was. And I can prove that he, I've got it on recording. He gave me the money up front. These people told me where to get the stuff. They're all elements of the supply chain. Um, I hear what you're saying, Jonathan. Jonathan, I like... Me exposing him will be more in the public yeah, interest Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this. Him. I like this. What you were doing was saying, look, this is gutter journalism. This fucker, excuse my language, is entrapping yeah. people into doing things so that they can splash it on the front page of the paper. This is not yeah. actual news. They're coaxing people into doing things they can claim to be criminal or fraudulent and then they can splash it right across the newspaper. And you decided, let's put an end to this. I've been recording him. I know what's going on. So you went and you purchased these coins with the money he gave you and then things went pretty south for you, didn't they? Because I didn't know how deep the cesspit ran. In the past two years, these are the key things that listeners now might, this is the bit of the jigsaw we go, oh. But in the past two years, it's come to light that despite, and in the Amazon documentary, it's portrayed that Mahmood hated phone hacking, had nothing to do with it. That is blatantly untrue based on the evidence I've seen. Because there are receipts for private investigators with my name on and other Mazama mood victims, fake shake victims, and indeed, um, over 12 months ago now, John Elford, the London's burning grain jail actor, was paid an undisclosed sum of money out of court to avoid them having to step into the news into the courtroom by news newspapers for his civil claim for unlawful information gathering. Now, I'm sorry, this is uh, you know. Well, we, well, it's we a smoking. It's a smoking gun, isn't out, it? We paid out money, but we're, we're not guilty of doing things we shouldn't do. No, I don't think so. Somehow, is my opinion, and I've seen evidence that the private investigators were paid in relation to me. Dr. Evan Harris, one of the founding members of Hacked Off, uh, HackingInquiry.org, the campaign for victims of media abuse, he got a settlement um, last year, and he's out of outside court video, which you can see on circusofthemind.net, he blatantly says there's evidence that numerous Mazamamu fake shape victims had their phones Had their phones he hacked. He was always ahead of me, but it's worse than that. Let's, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Ultimately, yeah. you, ultimately, you ended up going to prison. I don't know I how think, yeah. anybody... Because, first of all, it's not for me to tell my listeners whether you're telling the truth or not. I'm not doing no, that. No, it isn't. No, but, but I... I believe you because I know what Mahmood got up to. And um, so, so I believe your story. So how does it feel having tried to expose the worst of journalism? I mean, the absolute depths, the, the, the worst of the worst. And by attempting to do that, not realising the forces you were going up against and that they were five steps ahead of you. Yeah. And next thing you find, yourself in, you find yourself in jail for counterfeiting money. I mean... That has driven most people crazy. Well, there's a few issues here, okay? I ended up in jail, apparently for delivery of and um, being concerned in the supply of counterfeit coins, okay? But there's a few issues, and these are explained more at circusofthemind.net, but issue number one. At one meeting, the first meeting, I handed over three coins that were genuine from my pocket. But nonetheless, 
the article that appeared in News of the World said on his first on the first meeting he handed our reporter three coins. So make note of that three coins. And then in that article it clearly states that at a later meeting, i.e., on a totally different day, a good week later, that I handed over these thousand coins. They admit to mention they gave me the money up front, and they obviously don't mention that it was their team that told me where to get them from. But that's 1,000 plus three is 1,003. Fairly simple math. There's a few problems here. All the court documents and all the police documents, which people can see on circusofthemind.net, show that apparently I got charged for three coins on the first meeting and 997 coins on the second meeting, which doesn't tally with the story and doesn't make sense. Doesn't make no, any sense, no. No. So where do the other three coins go? The only logical explanation is that Mahmood didn't hand them to the police because they were genuine. Because they were genuine coins. Now... That, that I'm not saying that that I mean that there's a lot of detail in there, right? I, I don't want to get too bogged down, and it's obviously important the detail. But um, taking what you've told us at face value, um, which which, mm. which I am doing because I've looked into this and, myself. And, and Richard, I'm telling you straight. I, I know I've you looked into know it. a bit more, but viewers and listeners, please don't take a single word I say. Go and see the court documents, the legally verified court documents. And the evidence that is documents from the courts and the police. It's all on the website, Circus of the Mind. I'm saying. It's all on Circus of the Mind. Of the Mind.net, right. So the, the, the audio, when you were planning this thing on Mahmood, you, yeah. they were doing video, but you were doing audio. Was any of the audio that you captured in your contacts with this bloke and his people, why wasn't that of any use to you in your own defence? Do you know what? I wish I knew the answer to that. I wish I also knew the answer to this, okay? So I, I just mentioned about where did three missing coins go, but also I handed over, I went and collected from the source they told me the coins on a Friday. That Sunday, the story went in the paper, yeah? It took them until the following Sunday for the coins to be handed in at the police station. That is nine days after I collected them i.e. there is no chain of evidence, no proof they were even the same coins. Further, since then, I've done a freedom of information request with the Royal Mint, and they've confirmed in writing, and it can be seen at circusofthemind.net, that they are regularly sent coins for verification and forensic uh, testing as to whether they're real or not, and that they checked against my name, all my stage names, and also against Mazamamood, News of the World, and every other possible search term for the time period involved. And whilst they have records from that time period, they have nothing connected to me suggesting that the coins were never forensically tested and that the word of a now-convicted liar who manipulated evidence in the Talisa case was just taken as read without proper testing. So in terms of the audio, why didn't it help me? Because they turned around and said it didn't give me legal, lawful excuse for going and collecting the coins. They did not afford me the same journalistic licence my mood was for buying coins. No, but the point is you could demonstrate clearly that you had been trying for some time to set yeah. up my mood. Not good enough. Not good enough. And, and, and it turns out that apparently I know now, I know well, the bottom line is I found out in the past two, three years, which I didn't know years ago, it's called cover-up. It's the reason why the Leveson Inquiry Part 2 was cancelled by the Conservative government. 
I thought I was trying to expose the journalists that lied and distorted things. It turns out that this journalist was somebody who regularly hacked phones, who regularly fabricated evidence, regularly framed people, and above all else, get ready for this one, drug people routinely, uh, celebrities, royalty, the lot. I've now got a statement in the past couple of years from Steve Grayson, who you can see on the Amazon documentary, um, stating categorically, and I'll read this word from word from my website, Steve Grayson, a former journalist who worked with Mazza Mahmood, who's now a managing director of Kavanagh Sterling, an international business intelligence firm, is featured in the documentary, and he revealed what he knows in a legally sworn statement that's been presented to the Royal Courts of Justice and is currently being, uh, will be used in my civil case that was filed on the 30th of September 2022 against news group newspapers, where he clearly states, that, and I'm quoting his words here, I have been asked what I know about the spiking of drinks, alleging that Mazza boasted about his links to a pharmacist who could supply him with a drug that had the same effect of GHB, the date rate drug. He said he used it in his social life to seduce, if that's the right word, young women. He also recalled an incident at London Savoy Hotel where Mahmood poured a girl who was not being very forthcoming a drink and claimed that within 20 minutes, the girl said she felt woozy, but was much more talkative. Now, these Over are allegations. The years, these are unsubstantiated. Yeah, but hang on. But these are unsubstantiated allegations. They've, they haven't been no, proven. No, 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 no. This is sworn yeah, testimony. Yeah, but, but listen, people swear testimony and they lie. This guy might have some other grievance okay. with Mahmoud. Well, here's the thing. I'm this not saying it me, isn't true. I'm saying we don't do know it research. is true. I agree. I agree, Richard. But this led me to it's do very important research. I say When that. I did, I discovered that dozens of people over the years, dozens over the years, um, but no one ever linked it together, have claimed that they believed their drinks were spiked because after the event, they either felt drunker than they ever would from the small amount they drank, or they did things they wouldn't normally have done they were not in a fit state of mind. And I'm talking uh, snooker player John Higgins, um, Earl of Hardwick, Joseph York, Stephen Twaits, Lawrence Delagio, the rugby um, manager. Um, rugby all player, of these yeah. people, John F., they've all said, and their legal teams, that they believed that their drinks were spiked, as did, and this wasn't reported that much, but people can Google it and see it's true, or indeed go on circusofthemind.net. Indeed is the case with Talisa Contostavlos as well, the case that finally collapsed and finally brought to light Mamou's dishonesty, although here's the stinger in the tail, Richie. The stinger in the tail is not only have I in the past two years got the evidence that he drugged me and all other victims, that he hacked my phones and other people's, but also in disclosure... Jonathan, hang on a second, hang on a second. Yes. If you have evidence that, that Mazar Mahmood drugged you, why mm. why are you not giving that evidence to the police and asking them to press charges against them? Because at this moment in time, my legal team are focused, as shown as circusofthemind.net, on the civil case against Mahmood and also about news group newspapers and my criminal um, conviction, getting that overturned as it's the case with other victims. The trouble is, there seems to be a lot of resistance with the police to investigating Mahmood. And this could be because he's bragged in the past about having bent police officers in his pockets. 
Um, is he on the record? Video- Hang on, is he on the record somewhere as having claimed that he had bent yes. coppers in his pocket? Yes. He is. Yes, yes, yes. There's a link to the video on Circus of the Mind. Can I just do a quick? Can I just do a quick recap because we've covered so much there? And, I know. Uh, I know it, it sounds look, unbelievable. No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound unbelievable at all. Listen, I started out in the media in 1998. None of this sounds. I met these bastards. Listen, my better <laughs> my better half ran a successful bar in Spain in uh, in the late noughties, and when she opened her bar one evening. Um, we were told that Paul Gascoigne, uh, Chris Waddle and Paul McGrath and a number of other players were going to come in because they were playing a celebrity pro um, golf tournament on the Costa del Sol. So we said no problems. Now Gaza wasn't doing so well at the time. Um, he, he was a perfect gentleman but he was obviously very inebriated for a bit. Within 24 hours of the guys coming and spending some time, and to my missus's uh, credit, by the way, my amazing missus, she wouldn't give Gaza a drink. Um, She put her arm around him and looked after him, but she wouldn't give him a drink. He got a drink next door. She wouldn't serve him drunk. That was very important because I remember Chris Waddle, who spoke perfect French, having lived in in Marseille for years, said to her, you know, it's a nice thing you've done there, but um, he's going to get a drink somewhere. You know, he's, he's just going to have a drink. Anyway, long story short... They went back to the UK and a pretty looking woman came around our, well, my missus's bar the next day, accompanied by a photographer, very ballsy, made it known that she was from the Sun newspaper and basically said to my missus that she could name her price if she was to talk about Paul Gascoigne, particularly, particularly if she was to say nasty things about him. My missus is French. Bastard. Bastards. My missus is French. She comes from a great family. They're noble people. My missus told him to get fucked. Get out of the fucking bar well and don't uh, don't come back. These people were nice. They treated everybody well. They posed for photographs. She said, we'll give you what you want. They said, um, they, they had a couple of drinks and they said, you can charge us what you want. A couple, <laughs> of, a couple of lagers, you know, well, that'll be five euro for two lagers, two fifty each. Oh, no, you can add, add on some whiskeys and add on some Grey Goose vodka. They are the scum of the earth, these people. So I have no problems... I, your outrage is palpable. You want your record expunged. Let me just remind our listeners, this is one of the most notorious it's things. Not, to be honest, I'm not bothered. I, 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 all right, yeah, I'd love my conviction. Well, it should be, term, shouldn't but it? But it's more about everybody, because you mentioned at the beginning, earlier on, that he got loads of convictions. And here's the thing. He bragged at the Leveson Inquiry about having over 200-odd convictions, okay, as a result of stories. Now, a friend of mine, Paddy French, who runs a website called Press Gang that people can Google and find, but the links are on circusofthemind.net, dug out every Mazama Mood story ever published, okay, uh, got a team onto it, and then investigated how many actual convictions had resulted. And it was far less than the 200-odd that Mahmood claimed under oath at the Leveson Inquiry. He perjured himself there. And of those actual convictions, um, Dr. Evan Harris has looked at them in depth and if you look at circusofthemind.net you'll see a video of Dr. Evan Harris that I'm using kindly um, from the um, Hacked Off website who helped me do abuse victims where he went into depth and studied and his investigation showed he didn't put, he didn't put a percentage on it he just said that the vast majority so I'm going to put a percentage on it and say as far as I can see around 95% or more of the convictions 
that resulted as a result of Mazam Mahmood fake shake stories are unsafe and should be overturned. Well, he had some big ones, Jonathan. of justice. He had some big ones. I mean, this is what I can't understand about characters like him. And let me do this before, because we're going to run out of time very quickly. Let me do what I was going to do a minute ago. Yeah. I wanted to remind our listeners why you're on and what we're talking about. Mazar Mahmood, this is one of the biggest scandals in the history of British journalism. The news of the world and the sun used this guy who posed as a fake Arab leader with loads of money. politics. British politics. Can you let me finish for a minute? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- this guy uh, wormed his way in to the company of famous people in the worlds of entertainment and politics in a bid to entrap them to coax them into doing something um, that they could later claim was illegal so that they could put it on the front page and destroy these people's lives. I mean, it's incredibly awful that it went on. I remember when it all came out in the uh, in the wash or, 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 or most of it came out in the wash. In any case, I couldn't believe they got away with doing it for so long. Now, you've told us um, very eloquently what happened to you um, in terms of your dealings with this guy. You said that you're not too bothered about it being expunged. What do you want? And why? Because I, I mean, I give you credit. I, your I persistence. mean, me personally, I'm not yeah. too bothered. This is now. This is about. There's people who suffered far worse than me, and uh, and my investigate. I want it for everyone. I don't want just for me. I want all the unsaved convictions, which I would say 95 percent of the ones that resulted as a, a, a so-called word. And here's a key reason. Two final things I've not mentioned, which you're going to find unbelievable, and I find it unbelievable they were not mentioned in the Amazon documentary, especially given that I uh, consulted with our researchers and they had access to my websites and other stuff. But it it turns out in the past couple of years, uh, in high court cases uh, for phone hacking, documents were disclosed. So they've been verified by judges as being genuine. So this is not conjecture, not conspiracy. This is documented caught fact that in newsgroup newspapers archives were documents showing that the Metropolitan Police and the Crown Prosecution Service communicated with each other in 1994 about a trial that collapsed in 1992 based on Mahmoud's evidence. Okay, And in these communications, the Metropolitan Police and the Crown Prosecution Services uh, Special Investigations Department, who always dealt with Mahmood stuff, categorically stated to each other that Mazza Mahmood could no longer ever be considered a witness of truth in any future legal matters. He was on sound as, yet, a, as, as a And as yet, a witness, for another yeah. 20 years he was. That raises a big question, doesn't it? Where is he, Jonathan, these days, this guy? Well, um, assuming it's the correct Mazza Mahmood, and I won't mention the name in case... Um, it isn't because I don't want to uh, put attention on. Oh yeah, and I meant roughly. I, yeah, I meant roughly. Got, I, I don't want anybody giving any addresses birth, here. Yeah. If you take his date of birth, um, which you can find with a Google search, and put it into company's house, it appears that he may have an involvement with a property management company. And I know that Steve Grayson, who used to work with him, said that he invested his money into buying uh, cheap properties in the East End, and then allegedly housing. Um, immigrants in them because it was a guaranteed income. Allegedly, yeah. I'll say now because that bit I don't know, but one one other thing I do know is this. The police and the Crown Prosecution Service, therefore, 
1994, when they said they should never rely on him, failed to disclose that to me in 1998, failed to disclose it to um, John Alford in 97, failed to disclose it to all victims after 1994. Which would have resulted in your cases not going anywhere near a court. They'd never gone to court. Yeah. Here's here's the thing, here's the thing, Jonathan, here's the thing. Mahmood is a symptom. I I look at Mahmood, and I've never met the guy, maybe it's unfair for me to say this, but I know what he's done. He's the scum of the earth. However, all he is... What is the worst? I agree. He's a symptom. I mean, what about the editors? What about the managing editors? What about the, you know, the people who enabled him? I can't name them now here because... Uh, I'm not sure how the legal land lies there, but a lot of his bosses at the time that were involved are definitely named in my particulars of claim that anyone who chooses to go to the High Court and obtain a copy of Alex Smith versus Newsgroup Newspapers, because that's my birth name, filed on the 30th of September 2022, will see named a lot of the bosses. And, um, yeah, they're culpable as well. There's evidence that they knew what was going on encouraged what was going on and signed off on payments for stuff. Because it was just about selling newspapers, not about the truth. You know, it, there's, and the thing is, they could influence politicians and the police. They, Mamou bragged about having bent police officers in his pocket. Well, you're, Brooke, what you're touching on there, which is very interesting, is there is, yeah. a, there is a little element of Jeffrey Epstein to this, isn't there? Just a little bit. You know, in terms of we we believe that Jeffrey Epstein was entrapping celebrities. Well, pr- well yeah. no, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was entrapping politicians in order to get them to toe to, exactly yeah. to toe the line. And Mahmoud was involved with politicians, and maybe there were politicians Mahmoud was involved with that we don't know about. And if that's the case, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot more. Uh, to the story the facts fo- that we do know, the facts that we do know of this, a few final facts because I know that time's running short. Fact, documented fact that the most investigated but as yet unsolved murder in British history is the Daniel Morgan murder, which occurred in 1987. And in the past uh, year or so, the Metropolitan Police have had to apologise, uh, they're paying compensation to the family. And people can go and search for the Daniel Morgan murder inquiry report. It's available online. And when they do, if they look at that PDF and search for the name Mazam Mahmood, aka the fake Sheikh, they'll see that that name comes up multiple times in terms of interfering with the police inquiries, which is interesting in itself. That's something people can check out. People can also check out on circusofthemind.net that court documents exist to back up what I said that he drugged people. He had people's phones. Allegedly, with the drugging. With the drugging, there's no physical evidence. No, you have to admit that, Jonathan. There's no physical evidence that the guy drugged anybody. I know you. My experience, I know you suspect I would categorically claim that I was drugged, and there's way too many other people that say that. And um, if if he disagrees, please please sue me for slander, and I'll happily go into a courtroom. I'll be more than. Happy to do so. Well, he had. Um, he, he also had a team working with him. Look, we're we're bang up on uh, time. I want to. Um, a, a next I mean, time. Can I tell you one final thing? 1999, Rodri Giggs, the uh, brother of footballer Ryan Giggs. Yes. A case collapsed. A drugs case against him, where Mamou claimed he was supplying drugs, collapsed. Number one, 
It collapsed because the prosecution suddenly decided they could no longer rely they on Madeline Moore's him. recordings because they'd been edited. And His testimony two, was unsafe, yeah. The judge turned round and said Mahmood should be investigated for illegally buying drugs. Why cover it up? None of this should have ever happened post-1994 onwards. Well, you're asking, why didn't that happen back in the early days? Why didn't the judge ask, you know, what what, what was Mahmood doing? Why was he doing it? Who enabled him? Look, Circus of the Mind, next time we speak, I'm going to charge you a pound for every time you mention the website, by the way. Just thought I'd give you... <laughs> I thought I'd give you fair warning there, but look, it's I a plug your website all over the place, Richard. Listen, it's listen, it's an absolutely fascinating story. Thank you. And uh, I, I obviously will put the website uh, details on the podcast notes. Jonathan, we'll we'll do a show later in the year where we'll talk again about the mind control techniques employed by the media because it's been a long time since we did that, and it's very useful. It's entertaining when you do it. It's also very important, but um. Listen, pal, thanks for coming on today. Circusofthemind.net. You've been listening Thank to Jonathan so Royal. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll do it again. Bye for now. Jonathan, former children's TV presenter, very well known. He used stage names, you see. His real name is Alex Smith. Um, magician, stage magician, street magician. And he was entrapped into buying or attempting to buy and then distribute uh, coins which were not exactly legal tender and ended up in prison because of it. And this is down to the activities of the fake Sheikh Mazar Mahmood. There is a documentary on Amazon Prime at the moment, three parts. I watched a bit of it today. I speed watched some of it. It's very, very interesting indeed. Uh, this guy, um, he had some successes, this guy, you know, in terms of exposing wrongdoing. There's no doubt about that. But most of the time, or a lot of the time anyway, he was entrapping people, enticing people into situations, pretending to be a very wealthy Arab, a royal Arab. Um, they, they really worked. I mean, just, just, it's just very well done, as bad as it was. And then they tricked sometimes celebrities, well-known or otherwise, into appearing to break the law. That went into the news of the world and lives were destroyed. As I said, it's on Amazon Prime. Very interesting stuff. You heard Jonathan on Wednesday's Richie Allen show. The time is fast approaching five and a half, six and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Um, I'll be back with you in in a jiffy. Your body's defences are under constant attack from flu, respiratory diseases and the common cold. Now more than ever, it is essential that you have a robust immune system. And as we all know, vitamin D3 plays an essential role in this. Immunex 365 is our unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. This unique combination of nutrients ensures efficient bioavailability of D3 thereby giving your immune system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. For your peace of mind, all NutriHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Go to NutriHealth365.com to get yours now. That's NutriHealth365.com. And this week, The Richie Allen Show has been brought to you, and it will be brought to you this week, by NutriHealth365.com. NutraHealth365.com There's uh, an advertising feature on the website. Check it out. Uh, Supporting that excellent company, you're supporting the independent media. So thanks to everybody involved there. Faisal wonders, is it more likely that the fake shake is part of the Intel slash propaganda establishment? It takes more than a few bent coppers 
to, uh, you know, entice or to induce a court to convict on such dodgy evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if he's right, like, if this guy, the fake Sheikh Mazar Mahmood, was doing a lot of stuff that didn't end up on the front page of the News of the World, like, for example, if he was working with others to entrap or to to um, compromise, say, people in the police or in the judiciary. And I'm not saying that he did do that because there's no evidence that he did that. But if hypothesising, hypothesising, if he was doing that, it might explain how he managed to get away with doing what he did for so long. You know, because as Jonathan said, many a celebrity did try and stop this guy but they were basically stonewalled by judges in the High Court who said, well, no, this is in the public interest. And I've said this a thousand times over the years. You know, what politicians do uh, when it contradicts, what, what they do in their private life, when it contradicts the things they say in their public life, is in the public interest. If a politician breaks the law, it is in the public interest. But I would argue that a soap actor or actress or somebody who plays for a professional football team, if they go and have a drink on a Sunday, and if they take a controlled substance, a substance that they're not supposed to be taking, I don't necessarily believe that's in the public interest. Now, you can scream bloody murder at me if you like. You might disagree, and you might be right for you, but I don't care. You know, the private lives of people who are not making decisions that impact on on my life, and of course, I know the irony, politicians are not making decisions, decisions that impact on my life, they're made by other people, I know, I know, I know. But where politicians are involved, it's fair game, but where some bloke who's famous for something else and has no impact whatsoever on me or, or on my life, if he's calling a, a professional escort to come to a hotel room to have an encounter with her, I don't give a shit about that. I don't particularly like it. It's not something I would ever do or I've ever done, but it's none of my business. And it's not in the public interest, that. He made a good point there. That's it for the programme. We'll be back tomorrow, Thursday. You won't believe it. Dr. Ahmad Malik is on the programme tomorrow. He's the orthopaedic surgeon. He's a terrific guy. He's got an excellent podcast, does Ahmad. And he said, Richie, uh, just look for Dr. Malik, D-R-M-A-L-I-K, you'll find him. He said, let's get some of your listeners on the line to ask me questions about anything that's gone on in the last three years, about their own health. So Dr. Ahmad Malik will be on tomorrow. That'll be fun, it'll be entertaining, and it'll be educational. He's an all-around good guy. Ah, you did that earlier on. I pressed the wrong bloody button, so I did. Because I'm a bit of an idiot. Aren't I, though, sometimes? I am. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to Jonathan Royal, circusofthemind.net, nutrahealth365.com. Friday night, I'm going nowhere.